Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Hi, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew Pierce, and this podcast is recorded in the lands of the Wajak people of Bulu, Perth. Sovereignty never ceded. Filmmaker Robert McCohen is an independent filmmaker who continues to stun with a body of work that is emotionally shocking and at times darkly comedic. His previous film, The Killing of Two Lovers, stands as one of the towering achievements of modern American indie filmmaking. And it's with that strength and the fortitude of low-budget filmmaking that he turns the story of a young man trying to do the right thing for his family into a darkly comedic tragedy with the integrity of Joseph Chambers. Robert collaborates once more with Clayne Crawford, with Clayne playing the titular character. Joseph here is a skewed version of David from The Killing of Two Lovers. They're both dedicated to their families and their safety. Yet, unlike David, Joseph is filled with a pride and misguided machismo that he believes will be enough to support his family in the event that there is some kind of massive event where food or supplies are no longer widely available. Yet, while on the surface this may seem to narratively be a COVID-adjacent film, the integrity of Joseph Chambers instead explores the meaning of masculinity in America. And just like Two Lovers, it shows a nation on the precipice of violence. Here, the violence is not delivered with purpose. Instead, it's a mishap, a soul-breaking act of accidental mayhem. Integrity sits on the shoulders of Klein, but it's buoyed by two performances that bookmark the film. At its opening, Jordana Brewster, as Joseph's wife, Test, is given a wealth of character development to work with in a short period of time compared to, well, that famous series that she's part of. And at the end is Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who plays a police officer. And here, Jeffrey delivers a stoic and empathetic performance that closes the film in a really emotional beat. In the midst of this is also a performance from Michael Raymond James, which is best described as one delivered with a resignation that hints at the desolate future that America faces as it continues to struggle with an epidemic of violence. To be clear, The Integrity of Joseph Chambers is not a film that explores in-depth America's relationship with guns or violence, but rather seeks to recontextualize and examine what the modern American man actually is. Just how is somebody who realistically should not own a gun, let alone shoot one, supposed to manage in a society that almost dictates the need to have one? It's this discussion point that Robert talks about the most in this interview, recorded ahead of the Integrity of Joseph Chambers' launch at Perth's Revelation Film Festival. Integrity screens on July 14 and 15, with tickets being available via revelationfilmfest.org. Make sure to listen to the previous discussion that I had with Robert about The Killing of Two Lovers, where he talked about being influenced by filmmaker Kelly Reichardt. You can hear that on the website, thecurb.com.au. For now, here's a little bit of the trailer of The Integrity of Joseph Chambers, and then Robert will return to talk about the film. Hey, little lady. I'm sleeping. Please go back to the bathroom, shave it off. I'm not shaving it off. It's my hunting look. Hunts of guys around here hunt for their livelihood. You're not from here, Joe. 
Can I borrow your, your rifle? You need ammo? Nah, I bought some. Sorry. If you just wait the next week, I can go. Thanks again. I'm the mustache man. I'll catch it, I'll kill it any way I can. Seems like the whole world's falling apart. Come on, John. This thing's happened. Huh? He's trespassing. We're doing what's right. You did the right thing, John. You have to tell me what happened. See, and I wanted to start talking about the uh, genre or the, the at least the, the feel that you've got going here because it bounces between comedy and drama in quite an interesting way. And I've read some pieces where people say it's a very hilarious film. And then other people say that it's a really like soul wrenching film as well. And it's like these two things are working in harmony together. And I'm curious if you can talk about the difference between, you know, balancing a comedy as well as having that kind of seriousness in there. Yeah, I really, uh, comedy is so hard. I mean, it's a, a very difficult yeah, I've always been really actually envious of comedy because it's such a challenging uh, genre of cinema to take on because you can end up with people laughing, but they're not laughing because the movie's good. You know, they're laughing because it's like so ridiculous or maybe you've written a funny scene, but overall you haven't haven't written a, a very uh, a very compelling film as a whole. And I wanted to really... Uh, play into the kind of idiocy of Joseph Chambers as a way to kind of, I, I felt to, to get a little bit more raw at like our existence and, and men in particular, you know, we have this um, obligation sometimes due to society to be the people that know what's going on in a circumstance purely out of the kind of the gender roles when we know very, we know very little um, and I was actually really struck with, uh, so Jeremy Davis was the liaison when we were shooting Killing Two Lovers. He's the guy who's working on his truck. And I mean, he lived in rural, in, in Kenosha, in that rural area. And, and we, you know, there's a gun in that film as well. And I was talking to him one time about weapons and he was like, I don't, I don't really know much about him. And I thought like, oh, you're in this like, you know, my naive assumptions was he would know, I'm like in a town of 300, you know, food is an hour and a half away. I would have just assumed you would have been a part of hunting culture. I just assumed you would have like owned weapons and he did not. And, and I was really kind of taken by that and those kind of expectations kind of placed upon us. So I really wanted the idiocy to play in this idea of, of Joseph acting as if he understood what he was doing. But I wanted like, a, a real gun owner to be like so uncomfortable along with the non-gun owners to be really, you know, can we, can we collectively agree that Joe should not have a weapon? And I thought that would, that would make the harder things that we were going to dive into as the Coen brothers do in some of their films, the, the, the deeper things you dive into not be like drugging people through the mud, uh, the whole movie, but maybe there would be levity kind of throughout as well. 
I mean, that's the thing which I, I think is so fascinating, certainly as an outsider looking in, is about seeing gun culture in America and, and seeing people's engagement with guns and of, of varying kinds. And of course, in Australia, we have a very different relationship with guns yeah. and things like that. And it's, you know, it, it's its own complex beast. But with both killing and integrity here, I, I find it fascinating that like you're really engaging with the notion of violence and it, it feels like it's continually on the precipice of, of happening. And it's by characters who either intentionally want it to happen or maybe accidentally want it to happen. And as again, as an outsider, America is perceived maybe rightly, maybe wrongly as a very violent nation. There seems to be this interrogation of that violence in your work. And I'm, I'm curious if you can say whether it's maybe trying to reconcile with the violence or the people who are often the perpetrators of the violence. Yeah, you know, to be honest, for me, it's uh, it's conflicting in a way. I mean, I grew up mainly in California in a rural community there in the Salinas Valley where, where, you know, friends of mine were very kind of involved in the hunting culture. I remember eating, you know, like the first jerky I ever had was deer jerky. I, I did, naively didn't know they made beef jerky until I was like significantly older because it was the only jerky I'd ever, I ever had. But the majority of the community was a farming community. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a gun community. And then when I moved to Utah, Utah has a very high hunting culture, but also weapon owning culture as far as people who don't hunt, but also own weapons in the home. And that was kind of an interesting, for me, this kind of complicated, like, how do I feel about this? You know, like, I know my children are going to be at friends' houses and there will be weapons in the home. And so then I had to, I needed to kind of educate myself a little bit more on that and find out, you know, from people in this area how they respond to guns. And many of them have, you know, uh, gun closets and they're locked and, the, you know, they don't have ammo in the same, you know, there's safety mechanisms. So I think I think some of the exploration for me has been wanting to be this naively kind of liberal anti-idea, then being kind of pushed into a community that I understood. Like I've met guys that like kill elk at the beginning of the year and they their family eats on that all year. I mean, it's like elk, potatoes, carrots. I could stop by any day and like due to their financial circumstances, like that's what they're gonna be eating every day. And so it's really, really kind of complicated for me. So I don't know if I'm trying to rectify anything, but explore that like, it's very American to, to have an opinion on guns uh, either way. And, and, and in many cases have a very strong opinion one way or the other. And so it's like, I, I think in these films as I've explored it, you know, with killing, it was really like, assigning the gun as a symbol of masculinity so as david goes to it it's like him all these this energy that you're supposed to like you know protect your property kind of thing come into play there's a little bit of that in integrity but i thought it was uh, an interesting kind of play where the weapon is not his it's a borrowed so like this 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 next uh, echelon of masculinity is like borrowed it's not inherent in American men to be to understand how to use weapons, but it is an idea of like maybe you should at some point because you might have to protect your family, you know. I love that he's just not comfortable with holding it as well. There's this this is really awkward uh, stance of it, and I mean, 
I just felt really uncomfortable at times with seeing him running through and I'm like, something bad's going to happen to him or something else. And of course it does, but it's just that, that notion that you don't know how to hold it. You don't know how to actually, you know, prop yourself. And it's a real testament to to kind of Clayne's performance in this film because he, he, he understands weapons. He grew up in Alabama. There is a hunting community there. And when we were, uh, you know, one of the first scenes that we shot at the beginning of the shoot was him loading the weapon at the truck. And I was actually very nervous that it would be too obvious that he understood a weapon, you know, that it just is the comfort, the, the you know, the muscle memory. And uh, the first take we did, I mean, everyone on set was just so <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> like, you know, and I was like, okay, we're good. Like he's, He's bringing exactly what we need as it relates to the to that discomfort. So yeah. I was very that was very thrilling because that was from the you know for, as a writer you write these things with this imagination and in, in, intact and then you hand it off to an actor and it's like you're hoping that 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 communication's been translated. We'll talk about the themes a little bit more and then we'll go into the the production side of the film. But I'm curious if we can talk about the idea of the American man, the idea of the modern American man, because in both killing and integrity, you're really exploring different facets of, of masculinity that we don't really get to see because there is not, you know, the, the character here of Joe is not really like, he's not a terrible person. He's just trying to do the right thing that he feels is the thing that he needs to do as somebody pushed into it by society. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think there, I think what's happening, my, this is my own opinion, obviously, but I think there's a rewriting that's occurring that we're in the middle of, which is rewriting what it is to be an American man in this, in, in our country. And and I think many of the men my age are are really are exploring that. You know, it's like we're. It, it's funny because they, they we're at we're in the like. Uh, in I don't know what it is. But our generation is right in the middle. I guess I would say. You know, you you deal with uh, somebody maybe three years older than you that's very rooted in like you know the ideas of masculinity and are unapologetic or unforgiving about that and the way that they feel about it. And then you have. Uh, somebody three years younger than you that is actually very opposed, you know, like they don't know how to use a screwdriver, which again, to me is like, oh, come on, you got it. Like, you know, and it's like being a man doesn't mean, you know, how to use a screwdriver. So I think we're like kind of stuck in this kind of middle area. And I, so I think in a lot of my writing, it's exploring, I'm like, I'm in this middle and we're re- trying to rewrite what it is and that at the and, and the impact in which we re, re, rewrite it will actually impact our children and the way that our children so it's so i th- i think a lot of with both of these films i'm trying to kind of like in my own mind like what are we leaving behind what are we establishing what 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 are age of uh, men of this kind of age how they're toggling it and and integrity is very much that you know we're dealing with COVID. We're dealing with, you know, this apocalyptic ideas and you're, you're stuck with like, what is it that I do? And you, it, the reality is if you do the research, farming is what you do. You're like, learn, learn how to raise potatoes, you yeah. know, but that's like not as interesting as like going to a rifle range and like becoming like proficient in a, in a weapon, you know. But, but on the same hand as well, like not everybody thinks to research, right? So not everybody right. sits down to go, 
this is what I should do. They look at what everybody else does. Maybe they watch Doomsday Preppers or something like that, and they go, I get a gun, I go and kill a deer, and that's it. Like, yeah, one, two, 100%. three, done. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. The Doomsday Prepper I watched on Netflix for a lot of, re- you know, in the research mm. of my uh, writing I was doing, and 100%. I mean, you're correct. I mean, on those, I, I remember uh, Clay and I sending emails back and forth talking about this idea, and I came across one of the episodes where the guy shoots his thumb off, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, episode six, the guy shoots his thumb off, you know, and you're just like, ah, oh. uh, you know, then again, living in, in uh, Utah where that, I mean, that would be shameful I- anyway. It's the opposite. It's like, let's start with the, you know, how to handle the weapon and it's empty. And so, yeah, toggling kind of between those is, was, was very kind of, critical for me because they're not they're not doing the research and they are being kind of i mean gun sales go up every time either either any atrocity that's involved with a weapon sales go up anytime you know the pandemic hit weapon sales go up i mean it's just like at the end of the day i even watched some documentaries in central utah just out you know people that are just kind of wanting to leave society and are are just like going out to these middles of nowhere and many of them maybe a little were initially being uh, kind of anti or apprehensive about guns and then being like oh i'm a woman sleeping in you know in in a van out in the middle of nowhere it's actually a requirement that i have one there therefore i need to learn how to use it but they they've learned that week and a half uh into already having moved there so it's like some it's a local person who's like Hey, okay, let's teach you how to use a weapon as a result of the fact that you're going to live higher. So same thing, not a lot of research uh, happening, just reactionary, which I think we're all dealing with right now. I want to talk about Clayne, the opening with Clayne shaving and creating this magnificent mustache, which I think is really quite an impressive <laughs> mustache. <laughs> um, and he, you know, there's, there's this distinction almost between killing and here where he looks so different between the characters. And I'm curious if you can talk about how, you know, this character here, he's almost dressing up in a kind of masculinity that he thinks people should look like. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I very much wanted this to be a performance. You know, this is not who Joseph is like believing he has to take on these, the, the identity of a character. And so the outfit and the, the way once he looks which, you know, we, we got a great kick out of because it's like, it look, you look like a J crew model of uh, what a hunter should look like, but not actually what a real hunter would even kind of look like. Um, and because we wanted to really, once he enters kind of the woods and he falls asleep, we're like, we're moving into the surrealist aspect and we're really toggling this, like what's going on in his mind versus what's happening in reality. And so, yeah, it, uh, we thought it really actually kind of important that you know, we open as he's like obsessively sculpting this mustache. Like that's, you know, you, if we, if you can imagine in his head, the, he's like, I'm going to get up in the morning because he wants it fresh. You know, he wants it to, well, he could have shaved it the night before, but it's like, no, everything's got to, you know, it's got to fit how clean and pristine the, uh, you know, the jacket's going to be and the, the coat underneath. So uh, yeah, that, that was, that was a lot of fun. And, and we, of course, wanted the audience to know, like, you're going to be able to laugh in this movie and we want you to know it's actually okay to laugh in the film. Let's talk about the sound design as well, if we can, because it is really quite 
uh, impressive and immaculate, but I, I'm curious if you can talk talk about how you chose the, the layers of sounds, specifically also talking about the uh, the presence of sports sounds too. I imagine that's baseball sounds. Um, if you can talk about that as well, it would be great. Yeah, we, I was re-teaming with uh, Peter Albrechtin, which who we've worked together for quite a few films now. Um, and then we added Will Fritch, who is a composer I've worked with, and Peter has actually worked with a lot. And as we started to begin to discuss the sounds, we were really discussing, like, we are going to toggle uh, between, you know, surrealism, and we're going to move into surrealism in a way that's very different. With, with Killing of Two Lovers, it was really important that we understood the anxiety and the angst that, that David was feeling the longer he was away from his kids. And it was very like this repeating sound that began to build and build and build. And here we were like, no, 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 no. He's like, after he wakes up uh, from being in the, in the deer stand, we are Alice in the looking glass. We've gone through into, you know, if the movie ended with him waking back up and he's just in the deer stand, it, we were like, that would have, that could be a satisfactory ending as well, you know? And so with that, we began to really like introduce some of the sounds that we would continue to build kind of as, so when, when we get in the, to the baseball sequence, he's fully in this fantasy world with himself where he's this, you know, this grandiose, very great uh, baseball player winning the world series. We did the same thing as it relates to the world sounds. What Peter did is he went and he got um, this, I can't, I'm not, I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but he's been recording forests for like, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. And so we started in the Alabama forest, knowing that we would eventually end in not a real forest, that we'd have birds from other parts of the country. We'd have animals for the other, a tree creaking from other parts of the country. So he's fully no longer uh, in this place that he's familiar with. And that began to be really important. And then even with Will Fritch, we started like you hear these birds and eventually they're not birds anymore. They're violins that are mimicking the bird sounds and the sounds of the creaking forest are no longer actual trees, but the sound of like instruments that Will's built and created for the movie. For me, that's really exciting because I just think, I think sound is like an equal partner with performance and cinematography. And so I, I try and grab it as much time and as much uh, talent as I can from, from Peter and Will. It's, it just immerses you into the world and his mind so completely. It is, it is a vital part. And I think that, you know, often uh, it might be for some filmmakers, it might be something that is not immediately the forefront of their mind because they're thinking about the things that are in front of them, you know, the, the visuals, the, the performance and things like that. But layering that sound on really just amplifies the, the narrative so well. Um, but then on the, the flip side, we've got these long tracking shots and, and these beautiful shots, which um, just really quite immerse you in the story as well. But I'm curious if you can talk about those shots, but then also when you decide to cut, at what point do you decide to say, all right, this is enough. We spent a long enough time with Joe in this particular moment. Yeah, it's actually it's actually scary and pretty challenging working on these films with the the product production time that we have. I feel like uh when I'm listening to podcasts I get so envious of the filmmakers being like, "Oh, we took 3 days to shoot the scene." And I'm like, "Man, I wish I had 3 hours to shoot the scene. It would be uh it would be exciting to get that time and to explore." Uh, and since we don't, it requires so much calculation. It's like uh, thinking about the beginning, middle, and end of a scene 
existing in one in one kind of take. And I think a lot about um, that as it relates to the, to the performance. So to give you an example, it's like when 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 Joe is walking with the rifle and he's kind of using it to kind of clear the the you know the corn stalks. And it's like there are multiple elements that are happening. One, again, anyone who is a who is an avid hunter is like, you're making so much noise. Any, you know, any ant, like a squirrel wouldn't be within a mile of you because you're being so careless. Um, but then it's like, so we have that layer that's happening. And then it's the layer of the scene. It's like this, the anxiety for the audience has to build as it relates to how careless he's being with this weapon. And then once it's like too much. You know, and he put, you know, specifically he's cleaning the gun out as he's blowing in to get the dirt away. And you're like, this guy's going to, you know, blow his head off. Then I'm like, okay, now we've, we're almost following the three act structure in the beginning, you know, the climax. And then we're like the resolution, he doesn't die. We have to be out of that scene now because otherwise we're kind of dragging it on farther. So it was very tricky. Um, and then he, and Yvette Miriam's a great editor. And so we really kind of explored, like, it was kind of twofold. It's like the force itself is happening but then how it's the also the boredom of like what will we need to then later justify how careless he is as it relates to the actions that occur and that has to also happen via time so it's really tricky because sometimes you watch films and you're like let me tell you what's going to happen and justify it real quick through a series of quick cuts so that when we get to here you're like oh yeah because they told me you know within the first five minutes hey this is going to happen and and I don't necessarily like to do that. I like to do it. I try and do it more in the context of time so that people feel the like, Oh my gosh, like, why doesn't he just go home? You know? And it's, and it's like, you're feeling what he's feeling because I want you to feel that because later because of his actions, I want you also to feel what he's feeling when he's making these decisions. I don't want you to be the observer of those decisions. I want you to feel the same anxiety and you're like, no, come on. And so it's trick. It's really tricky um, and scary because it's like, if you push it too far, you can lose some people. If you don't push it enough. You've, you've not accomplished what you're hoping to get at. It's a, it's a really difficult balance. I took my hat off to you because there is so long that we spend with just him by himself. And I thought, you know, I really enjoyed it, but I found it it's an audacious choice to be able to go, all right, we're just going to sit with him just mucking around and not being a very good hunter at all. <laughs> you know, he's... Yeah, I'll openly admit it's scary as a filmmaker because somebody can walk up to you and be like, that was too long. Like, you're ridiculous. And the answer's like, you're not wrong, you know? But it's like, but to push back, it's like, but you're not, you're you're not wrong for you. But I, but I know from the filmmaking context and, and watching, I actually, I mean, I would defend my own self in the watching slow cinema and experiencing some filmmakers that are like, all right, I, I'm more important than you. Therefore, I'm going to challenge you to sit here. You know, uh, I remember watching Enter the Void and, and, and finishing that movie and being like, I sat through it. There you go, Gasper. I saw you. Know? <laughs> and they didn't, it was the uncut, the unremoved reel, you know? And I was like, I sat through the whole three and a half hours. And it was like, I knew he was testing that. I, I try and like toggle right between the middle. I, what feels necessary for the story, but isn't self-indulgent. And I felt, I felt uh, confident with Clayne as an actor as well, that it's like, he is somebody that like is very smart about 
what's happening within the frame and the use of that time within the frame so that we're not, he's never just like, Hey, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to look off, you know, into the distance and nothing's happening. Like something will be happening if the camera is on. him. I think that's it. It is that, that engaging nature of, of Klein as an actor. And of course your, your working relationship with him is so strong and, and great. I'm excited to see where you, you both go from here, but you've been bouncing between features and documentaries as well. And I'm curious if you can talk about that, that creative uh, balance between, you know, writing and directing and then going and making, you know, shorts, documentaries and things like that. Is that really important for you as a filmmaker to have that kind of reprieve in between styles? Yeah, I'm finding it, to be honest, more and more important as I am getting these resources to make films with feature films with a little more access um, because it keeps me actually very grounded in the context of like the world that I'm wanting to kind of discuss, which is the world that I grew up in. And it's not like I'm not I don't want to pretend like I'm doing so well financially that I don't know that world anymore. I know it very well. But it's, say, for example, what I've been spending time with recently, this documentary that I'm working on. So I, uh, like, I spent the last week uh, in California in the Salinas Valley where I grew up with a farmer who's growing organic strawberries and started from migrating from Mexico, came all the way, had a restaurant in Los Angeles it, uh, in 2007. It crashed. He lost everything, started working in the field, slowly built up. Now he has a 200-acre farm. And it's like dealing with real organics. And then two weeks prior to that, being on an organic farm that was ran by Driscoll, which is the largest, you know, um, producer that produces, you know, so many of the strawberries and seeing like, what are the ethics between I'm talking to the actual owner who pays the employees and I'm talking to a corporate farm and the way that they work with their employees. And that grounds me in like, this is complicated. You know, it's like, this is it's not as black and white as I want it to be. It's more, you know, the Driscoll farms paid people uh, two thirty a box. You, they could end up making almost $8,000 a, a week if they were fast because they're paid by the box. Right. The other farm paid by the hour. People could work slower, but then the, their, their pay was like controlled by the amount of hours they worked, not, not by their productivity. And I was like, Oh man, this is complicated. There's not a there's not a like one answer I can just hold myself to and be like this is the right ethical answer. And I I long-windedly say that to to mean I like to live in these grays and the only way to really live in the grays is live around the people that have to function within these gray areas in their day-to-day life. So I feel like it always kind of helps when I sit down and writing, I'm like am I being honest to the people I'm you know putting myself in circles with so that I don't my hope is never to, you know, to, to never really misrepresent the, this world that's my, you know, that I grew up in, but, um, but it's different. You know, I'm, again, I'm not a hunter. So yeah. I'm like, how do I make sure that, that, you know, I'm writing this with, uh, uh, Joseph being this kind of idiot character, but not mocking like hunting culture. I'm mocking like someone who didn't spend the time researching hunting culture all the while, like discussing this kind of dialogue of, of weapons or guns, in you know in america so do you have somebody who when you write a script or you have an idea that you bounce it off before you even start rolling normally i try and um talk to people that kind of live in that world like uh with with uh with integrity i went down and i met with a sheriff in a small town for about an hour and a half 
and kind of interviewed him about like what what would occur in this scenario and then I you know spent some time with a, a couple of people I really one of them's a painter who I really really admire who he he's the bow hunter that you know will kill a deer at the beginning of the year and he'll eat that deer throughout the year um to try and get at like the I'm like how can I you know bounce these ideas suggest things and that they'll normally inform me of like no, that's not correct, or that's reaching. The The project that I'm working on right now, interestingly enough, is about, uh, it's called I Love You Now Forever, and it's about a couple who get stuck in a situation um, that revolves semi somewhat around the healthcare industry, and my neighbor down the, the two, three doors down works in it. So, I, you know, I'm asking him, you know, how can I, how can I explore the complicated aspect of healthcare in the United States without just pointing a finger at one person? you know, instead be like, dude, what are we doing? Like I, and if the film, if the film is successful, the question shouldn't be like, someone's evil. It should be like, what's going on? What are we, what are we doing guys? Can we talk about it? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It sounds, sounds like a, you're exploring some interesting things and that's what I enjoy about your films. You always, you always pick something up and you look at it in such a fascinating manner that it makes the viewer reconsider the world that, they're looking at or that they live in uh it's it's really brilliant so thank you that's my my hope i mean (laughs) cinema cinema i mean i love it i mean i i i sit and i watch films and i sit and admire you know the work and i feel lucky to be able to be kind of a contributor to that that art form uh and it's it's just exciting yeah is as a last question is there anything that's kind of stuck in your mind from you know, maybe lesser known films or filmmakers that you've seen recently that you has, has really resonated with you? Yeah, I just, um, let me try and, uh, I, I just sent it to a friend of mine. Um, oh, it's called, oh yeah, it's called Falcon Lake. Have you seen oh, this yeah. movie? Oh yeah, I've, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. No. Oh, so, oh watch yeah. it. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. It was very, uh, for me, I was like so glad I saw it because it toggles uh, fantasy in a way, like the way it ties up. I was like, I mean, it's the first 40 minutes. You're like, I've seen this movie. It's a coming of age film, you know, on a family vacation. I got you. And then the way it progresses, I was like, I, I mean, I almost oddly stood up and clapped in my office. I was so taken by it. And I was like, they, they dealt with fantasy or uh, Rodrigo, who I collaborate with a lot, calls it fantastical realism mm-hmm. um, in a really kind of very, very cool way. So, yeah, I try and and watch kind of you, you watch the people that you should that you should admire and like look up to. And then I try and watch the people that are like exploring in my world uh, as well to, to find inspiration. Yeah, well, I'll definitely check it out. Um, yeah. Thank you, Robert, for your time. I, I appreciate yeah, it so much. I look forward to chatting with you again in two years' time when I get to see this documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah awesome. No worries. All right. Thanks, mate. We'll Have a good night. Cheers. You too. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Let Safeway help you unleash your globe with your favorite personal care products. Right now with Safeway, get great deals on all your favorite personal care products, like Head & Shoulders Base Shampoo, Crest 3D Whitening Toothpaste, Listerine Antiseptic Mouthwash, Sensodyne Sensitivity Fresh Toothpaste, Degree Women Antiperspirant Deodorant, or Soft Soap Liquid Hand Soap. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local Safeway store for more deals and specific details.